On June 17, 1994, this past Tuesday, 20 years ago, uh, I had just made my way to the Hamptons. My aunt had a home there. And, and after a long day, we turn on the television and immediately we see, instead of the NBA finals, we see a white Ford Bronco, all right, driving down the five freeway in southern Los Angeles. And O.J. Simpson's in the back, and they say he has a gun. And he had written a suicide note. And his friend and former teammate Al Cowlings was driving. And then you have all of these different uh, police, state troopers, and helicopters that are kind of converging on the scene. Turned out to be a 60-mile, low-speed chase. They believed that O.J. was running. He was supposed to have reported that morning... For jail. Instead, he's in this white Ford Bronco making his getaway. And it was the most intriguing, perhaps the most intriguing television event of the century. In fact, Domino's Pizza broke sales records that evening because no one wanted to leave their television set. No one wanted to cook. No one wanted to go eat out. And so they broke sales records that night. But as intriguing as that chase was, as remarkable as the chase was the following trial. It was deemed the trial of the century. Of course, we know that the defense um, did a remarkable job in defending O.J., And you had Johnny Cochran with his famous line, if the glove doesn't fit, then you must acquit. And he was acquitted for his alleged crime. It was the trial of the century, and it shouldn't surprise us. We've always been intrigued with scandal, scandalous trials. And that's not new. Are you familiar with the man or name um, Socrates? Socrates was one of the founders of Western philosophy. He tutored a man named Plato. And in 399 BC, Socrates was executed by uh, the Athenians, people of Athens, for what they deemed to be impiety and corruption of the youth. Well, what happened there is that Socrates was about 70 at the time. And yes, he had helped the Athenians in leading and defending Athens in three wars. He had taught for, uh, for decades in Athens. And he was an esteemed man. But he had also taken on some, some very important moral issues in the culture. But he didn't always do it well. He would embarrass leaders. He would shame leaders. And he would despise the common man. All right, he, he didn't have much for the common person. So they would sometimes publicly beat him and pull out his hair. Um, but the biggest problem he had was they didn't agree with his politics. They were trying to move to a democracy. Pericles, the political leader of Athens, had recently established the first democracy where common people actually had a voice. Common people actually had a vote. And Socrates did not agree with that. 
He believed that the common man didn't have the education or the virtue to have that kind of voice. And then, around that time, there were two of his former students who led revolts against democracy. And they, that is the government, perceived that he was behind it. Or at least his influence was behind it. And so they had him persecuted. You have this man who wrote a book uh, about him named I.F. Stone. Who published a book in 1989 entitled The Trial of Socrates. And he argued that Socrates wanted to be sentenced to death to make his point about democracy. So he believed that his dying would actually show the problem with democracy. And so he intentionally died drinking poisoned hemlock uh, to show, to make his point about democracy. And here's what Stone said. Socrates' death is kind of like Jesus' death. All right? Jesus needed the cross to make his point. Socrates needed the poisoned hemlock to make his point. All right? And so both of them have to go through these trials. But as we know, and as we're going to see, Jesus' sacrifice and Socrates' sacrifice are quite different. Socrates was motivated in part by pride and arrogance. He was a very prideful and arrogant man. Furthermore, He died trying to make a point to his enemies. Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, the most humble man who ever lived, died to save his enemies. Isn't that remarkable? Countercultural. And that death, that cross, is about three hours out at this point in the narrative. He's going to be hung on a cross around 9 a.m., The sun has just appeared, and it's probably around 6 a.m. when we pick up in this narrative. We've seen that Jesus is going to go through six trials. Three from the the Jews and three from the Romans. Now, it's hard to really establish the order of that, but if you gather all of the Gospels together, because none of the Gospels say everything about all of these trials, and so you kind of piecemeal everything together. Uh, At this point in the narrative, he's already been before Annas, and he's already been before Caiaphas. It's what we would call today some kind of pre-trial hearing. Now, he's about to go before the Sanhedrin, the most powerful group among the Jews. And the, after that, you're going to see the, the Sanhedrin indict him for his guilt, what they perceive to be his guilt, and then they're going to bring him before the Romans. We'll see that next time. But today we see him going before the Sanhedrin. It's already been a very difficult night for Jesus. Think about it. After he instituted the Lord's Supper, Judas departs because he's going to betray him. Then you have the disciples who break out in an argument about who's the greatest. All right? And then he goes into a garden with three of his his closest disciples, and instead of praying as he commanded them to do, they fall asleep. 
All right? And then Peter goes vigilante, cuts off a man's ear, and then he denies Jesus three times. It's been a horrible night for the Lord Jesus. And now physical death and it awaits him. And at this point, violence and shame is directed at him. And the first thing we see in this passage is he is mocked as the suffering servant for us. Look with us in verse uh, 63. It says, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. These men are probably the temple police. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy! Who is that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. He hasn't been yet officially declared guilty, and they are being allowed to do this, to mock him, to beat him, to make fun of him. But more significantly, there are three places in this narrative where it says Jesus is mocked. Here, he is mocked as a prophet. Prophesy, they say. Well, notice if you look over in chapter 23, verse 11. Chapter 23, verse 11, where, which we will look at next week. It says, Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. So... Next week, we're going to see Herod and his soldiers mocking him. But notice, arraying him in splendid clothing. Mark's account tells us they put on uh, a purple cloak, which was a kingly cloak. And then they twisted these thorns into a crown. And they put the crown on his head. And then they begin to cry, Hail, King of the Jews! So, in our present passage, he's being mocked as a prophet. Next week, we're going to see that he is mocked as a king. There's one other place where he's mocked. If you look in chapter 23, verse 35, notice it says, the people stood by watching. The rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There, he is mocked as a savior. Okay? And so in one place, he's marked as a prophet. One other place, he's marked as a a prophet and king. And then in that final place, he is marked as a savior. Now, this is significant. Because when the reformers brought us back, led us back to the scriptures in the 16th century, they identified that there were three offices that Jesus undertook for our redemption. Jesus came as our prophet, our priest, and our king. Okay? And it's interesting, and then those three offices are being mocked in this account. Okay? In our present passage, he's mocked as a prophet. Next week, we will see him mocked as a king. And then in the following week, we see him mocked as a savior or, if we could say, priest. Now, why do we need a prophet, priest, and king? Well, as our prophet, Jesus Christ 
reveals to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. If you know how to be saved today, it's because Jesus the prophet, by the spirit of God, through the word of God, has opened your eyes to your need for a savior. You recognize that God is holy. He must judge sin and that he has judged sin in the sinner or the Savior. And for those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And the only reason you know that is Jesus came as our prophet. And if you're saved today, it's because he came as a priest. He offered himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice. And he ever lives to make intercession for us. So he has provided the means, he has made the way for us to approach God. He is our priest. And the reason you're saved today, not only do you know him as a prophet and a priest, you know him as a king. You see, the fact that you're actually coming to God through Jesus Christ is a result of his kingly work. He has subdued you to himself. He has melted your heart. He has subdued that stubborn, sinful will. He is our prophet, priest, and king. And it's interesting that it's these three offices that are mocked. Because this is the hour of the power of darkness. The devil is on the loose. And so he is going after those three offices of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here in our present passage, he is our Prophet. He is God's final prophet to speak God's final word to us. That's why we don't need new revelation. We don't need book 67. Because the prophet has spoken. In these last days, God has spoken to us through his son. Now at first glance, if you look at that passage we just read, perhaps the question would arise, who could do this? This kind of thing. Who could mock anyone, much less Jesus Christ? Who could do anything like this? But as Charles Haddon Spurgeon uh, points out in a sermon he preached in the 19th century, he says, we need to lay aside our indignation and bring forth penitence because we have all hit our Savior in the face with our sin." It was because of our sin that he endured the abuse of these sinners and went willingly to the cross. It was our sin that drove him to the cross. And so in a very real sense, we're no different than those who are mocking him on this fateful morning. Uh, Rembrandt has a very famous painting. If we had, uh, you know, the overhead and everything, we would have had this painting up for you. Uh, But he was a very famous painter, and he had the famous painting called The Raising of the Cross. And so you have this beautiful painting with Jesus on the cross. You see all of the crowd gathered around the cross, scoffing at Jesus as some kind of criminal dying on the cross. But there, right there in the edge of the painting, okay, is a man with a beret. Guess what? They didn't wear berets in the first century. That man with that beret is Rembrandt. Rembrandt had painted himself into that that picture. Rembrandt was saying it wasn't just the crowd that put him on the cross. It was Rembrandt himself who put him on the cross. 
It was his sin that drove him to the cross. So we need to understand that as we come to texts like this. Keep in mind, the Bible is a mirror that helps us see crucial things about ourselves. Every time we open the Bible, we see a mirror. At the level of the heart, apart from saving grace, apart from transforming, renovating grace that the Holy Spirit effectually does, we're all the same. There is no one in this room who is less in Adam than any other person. Now, because of God's restraining grace, some people... Um, are more moral than other people, okay, in a common kind of morality. But the fact is, we are no more or no less sinful than anyone else. We're all in Adam. And so, in a very real sense, we are very much the same. And so we can, when you open the Bible, we can relate to Cain's jealousy, can't we? If we're honest, We open up Genesis and we can relate to Cain's jealousy. We can look at Cain's jealousy and we're looking in a mirror. All right? When we open the Bible, we can relate to Moses' anger. All right? When we open the Bible, we can relate to Elijah's depression. We can relate to Jonah's prejudice. We see ourselves. When we open the Bible, we can relate to Nebuchadnezzar's pride, can't we? We see ourselves when we see Nebuchadnezzar. When we open the Bible, we can relate to Absalom's disloyalty and David's lust. That's us we're looking at. We can see in the Pharisees, Our self-righteousness, it's right there before us. We can see even Peter's denial of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is us that is staring back at us. If we read our Bibles and are honest, we see ourselves on every page. We would have grumbled in the wilderness about the manna, just like the Israelites. We would have questioned... Moses' leadership at the Red Sea. We would have been attracted to the idols and the culture of Canaan. That's us that is staring back at us when we open the Bible. And we would have likely scoffed at this poor Galilean carpenter who was claiming for himself divine credentials. Ironically, this this mocking, this injury that Jesus is suffering here had been prophesied by him. Now, why is that important? Because even as he is being mocked and beat, he is under control. He is still in control. We saw it as early as chapter 9. We won't go there for lack of time. But in Luke 18, Jesus had said in verse 32, He, speaking of himself, will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked. He predicted it. He said, I'm going to be mocked. The same word that we find here. 
and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. In fact, that's exactly what the great prophet Isaiah had prophesied. Speaking of the suffering servant, the one who would come as our representative. In the fourth servant song uh, that you see in chapter 53 of Isaiah, here's what it says in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And it wasn't just mockery and injury. Mere men endure that. It's much more than that. He experienced what only God could experience. If you look back in chapter 22, notice the verb there in verse 60, 65. It says that they were blaspheming him. Mere man can't be blasphemed. This is an implicit identification of Jesus as God himself. He is being blasphemed. This is a particular kind of slander that can only be referring to God. And here's what's important. This is what the Nicene Creed brings out for us. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior for us and our salvation. Jesus is suffering all of these things for us. He is not a victim. This did not catch him off guard. He had prophesied it. It's going to happen. Isaiah had prophesied it. He has experienced these things for us. If you don't love the Lord Jesus this morning, it's because you don't see what he has done. If you really understand what he did and experienced so that you would have the forgiveness of sins, your hearts would be stirred. You would tell everybody about him. The reason we don't evangelize as we should is because we don't understand what He has experienced for us and our salvation. The reason we don't give sacrificially. The reason we would rather have financial security than to give sacrificially is we don't love the Lord Jesus enough. And the reason we don't love Him enough is because we don't understand what He has done for us and our salvation. You see, He did more than just die for us, though that was certainly significant, he also suffered for us. He suffered for us in his humiliation. You see, just as he fulfilled all righteousness by obeying God and dying on the cross for our sins, he also fulfilled all suffering. He fulfilled all suffering for us so that he could care for his suffering people. He now comes to us as that merciful high priest And he is able to sympathize with us in our suffering. But not only that, he gives us an example of how to suffer. You know, Peter will later uh, write about this in 1 Peter 2. And in that passage where he's speaking about this issue, he says, "Here's here's how you show your witness 
to a skeptical and, uh, let's just say, a world that does not believe in your God. He says that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Here's what you do. For to this you've been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus gives us an example of how to suffer. And you will suffer. You're going to have people uh, who tell lies about you. You will have people who betray you. Uh, you will have people who like to murmur behind your back. You, you're, you will experience that in a fallen world. And Jesus gives us the example as our merciful suffering servant on how to suffer rightly and righteously when those things happen. Indeed, he is the suffering servant for us. But secondly, we see he is ridiculed as the Christ for us. Notice again in verse 66 of our passage. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people, this is the Sanhedrin, gathered together both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. The Christ was the one that Israel hoped for, longed for, to bring salvation, to judge the enemies of God. Now, keep in mind, Christ is not Jesus' last name. All right? This is a, an official title. It means anointed one. Uh, the word Messiah is the Hebrew word for Christ. Christ is the Greek. Hebrew, uh, the word is Messiah. It's the same word idea. It's one who has been appointed and empowered to act in God's place. Now we recognize that Jesus is God, a very God, but in this sense, he is acting in the place of the father. And as we've seen throughout Luke, everyone knew at that time that the Christ, the Messiah would come from the line of David. All right. It's crucial that he come from the line of David. Why? David uh, is from the line of who? Judah. All right? Judah is the appointed tribe through whom Messiah would come. You can trace Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman who will crush the seed of the serpent. You can, you can trace that seed from Seth, the appointed one, through Noah, through Shem, through Abraham, through Isaac, all right, through Jacob, through Judah, through David. And now we see the Messiah that they are hoping for will come from the tribe of David. That's why Paul would later say, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. And so they understood the Messiah, the Christ, would come from David. And that explains, if you'll notice in chapter 23, verse 2. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. But here's the problem. They, they knew he would come from the line of David. But they wrongly understood that he would only be a man. 
Yes, he would be a man, but he would be more than a man. If you've read Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, For unto us a son is born, a child is given, he will sit on the throne of David, but he shall be called mighty God. They should have known that, yes, he is fully man, but he is also going to be fully God. And though they wrongly misperceived, that is, that he would be a mere man, which meant they also misperceived what he would do. They saw him as a political savior. They saw him as one who would get rid of their biggest problem, which was Rome. In other words, they were looking for relief and release, not rescue from their sin. They did not see their biggest problem as their sin. They saw their biggest problem as their circumstances. That's the way many of us think. We think that our biggest problem is our is our salary. Our biggest issue is our health or our next door neighbor or our boss or our spouse. Okay? We think our biggest issue is outside of us. And our biggest problem is inside of us. God uses all the various people and circumstances in our lives to expose what's inside of us. We don't need a political savior. We need a spiritual redeemer. One who would save us from their sins. They didn't understand that. And so they understand that because the the nation is looking for one who will overthrow Rome. If the Sanhedrin can get him to admit that he is the Christ. Then they can accuse him of an insurrection. They can get him before Pontius Pilate. And they know. They don't have. The Jews do not have uh, the, the power and the authority to put him to death. Only Rome did. And so they can get him to admit he's the Christ. They're going to take him to Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate would have him put to death. And so that's why they're asking him this question. And Jesus is the Christ. But he also knows that his understanding of Christ and their understanding is eternities apart. And so he doesn't answer them straightforwardly. Notice in the second part of 67, he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. You're not open to it. There's some people who just aren't open to the truth. And if I ask you, you will not answer. What is Jesus referring to if I ask you? What do you think he's talking about there? I think he's talking about the most important question you could be asked. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? That is the most important question that could ever be asked. The most important question that could be ever answered. Do you believe that he's the Christ? Oh yes, I believe he's the Christ. I'm here, aren't I? There is a real capacity to have a major separation between what you profess and what you actually believe, okay? Your functional theology, that is how you operate in the world, your attitudes and thoughts, your, your behavior, your words, that reveals what you really believe. Based on your actions, your attitude, your life, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? That's the question that is before us here. Do you believe that he's the Christ when you Open up that computer screen. Do you believe that he's the Christ when you turn on that movie? 
Do you believe he's the Christ when you open up your checkbook? Do you believe he's the Christ when you are gathered with your friends? Is he your Christ? That's the question that is before us. We must receive the testimony of the angel in chapter 2. When he describes this Christ, for unto you is born in the city of David, Jesus Christ, the Lord. Or the confession of Peter who says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That is the question. And he knows they're not ready to answer that question. Now it's intriguing. Though he doesn't explicitly tell them that he is the Christ, he does speak to two of his titles. We see this in the final part of this passage. We see him, he's going to be officially condemned by these men. And they're going to take him to the Romans at that point. He's going to be condemned as the son of man and the son of God for us. It's remarkable. We've already seen he's the suffering servant. We've seen he's a prophet. We've seen that he is the Christ implicitly. Now we're going to see that he is the son of man and the son of God. A lot of people would see this passage as not relevant because there's no commands to obey. This has all the relevance in the world. He's showing us who Jesus is. So look with me in verse 69. Here's his response. He says, from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. You need to recognize how audacious that statement is. By the way, Son of Man was Jesus' favorite title for himself. It's used in the Gospels 82 times. Most of the time, it's Jesus referring to himself. But most importantly, Jesus is citing two very important passages from the Old Testament. He's also teaching us how to read the Old Testament. Do you know the Old Testament's about Jesus? And in this particular statement, Jesus' response, he alludes to two very important passages. The first is Daniel chapter 7. The second, Psalm 110, verse 1, which is quoted 33 times in the New Testament. It's the most cited Old Testament verse in the New Testament, Psalm 110, verse 1. But let's look at Daniel chapter 7, first of all. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel is writing to the Jews who were in exile. All right? The temple's been destroyed. There is no Davidic king. There's no hope. The hope is bound up in David. There is no Davidic king. There's no throne. There's no temple where sacrifice could be made. There is, they are without God and without hope in this world. Okay? Just like the Gentiles. And Daniel writes about one like the Son of Man. He's one like the Son of Man because Daniel's writing greater than he knows. He's going to be a man, but he's more than a man. So he comes one like the son of man. You know what he's going to do? He's going to take these four beasts that come out of the sea, the pagan nations, enemies of God, and he's going to crush them to death. And then he's going to come before the ancient of days. He is going to come before the ancient of days and the ancient of days is going to hand over to him all the kingdoms of this world. And the Jews, the believing Jews, would have read that and they would have found all the hope in the world. God's going to restore things. He's going to restore things through this son of man figure. 
This one who will come from God, the Messiah. And this Messiah is going to judge the enemies of God. The Messiah is going to fix the broken things. The Messiah is going to save the covenantal people of God. And Jesus looks at the Sanhedrin and he says, that's me. That's me you're talking about. That's audacious language. And their jaws would have dropped. But he also refers to Psalm 110. Where it says, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand. See the language there? Till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This one, this Messiah would sit at the right hand of Yahweh. And through this Messiah figure, God would judge all the enemies of Of the world. And he rules at the right hand. Judging all his enemies. And so at the very time. Jesus is under judgment here. He is saying. In the end. I will be the judge. I'm going to be the judge. And that is. Our hope. That is the Christian hope. We live in a broken world. You get your heart broken don't you. You get your heart broken in this world. Things are not the way they're supposed to be in this world. There's injustice. There is inequity. There is sadness and brokenness. Mistreatment. And Jesus sits at the right hand of God. He is ruling and reigning on your behalf. If you're a believer. And in that posture... He is sitting in judgment on the enemies of God. But this image also reminds me of a remarkable passage in Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, you have the first recorded martyr for the faith. Oh, they've been martyred in the Old Testament. I'm talking about the first New Testament, uh, New Covenant martyr. John the Baptist was martyred. But in Acts chapter 7, you have Stephen, one of the first deacons, by the way. And in Acts chapter 7, he is defending the reality that Jesus is the Christ. He's essentially saying the same thing Jesus is saying here. And he's being unjustly condemned, just like Jesus. And he says, for instance, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Stephen is telling those Jews, your fathers persecuted all of the prophets. And he said, and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, who is Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Not seeker friendly, is it? And here's what it says in verse 54. When they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. Have you ever been so mad that you're just grinding your teeth? But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Note the similar language. He's at the right hand of God. In Luke's account, where Jesus is defending himself before... The Sanhedrin, he's seated in 
Stephen's account, he's standing. What's the difference? Well, as he is seated, he is in a posture of judgment. He's the judge. As he's standing, who stands in a courtroom? The defense attorney. Okay? Stephen is being unjustly judged by an earthly court. And as he is being unjustly judged by an earthly court, he sees reality. He sees the the true heavenly courtroom. And instead of a judge, he sees a defense attorney advocating for him. And at that moment, that earthly court seemed so weak. It seemed so pitiful. It seemed so impotent to Stephen. Because he saw reality in the heavenly courtroom. And you know what that did? It provoked him. It energized him. It strengthened him to persevere. When all hell is breaking loose. He is at the right hand of God. He's either seated there as your judge. Or he is standing as your advocate. Well notice... The religious leaders knew exactly, going back to Luke chapter 22, they knew exactly what he was saying here. They knew their Old Testament. And so they knew that Jesus was claiming divine prerogatives here. But to make sure they follow up, notice verse 70. So they all said, are you the son of God then? Okay, in light of what you're saying about this son of man who will be seated at the right hand of the power of God, this is certainly more than a man. Because in Daniel 7, this man has divine prerogatives. He has divine power. Are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. And then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. You know, there are cults and there are liberals today who say that Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, these religious leaders knew exactly what he was claiming. He was claiming to be God. That's why it says they were blaspheming. Okay? And again, Luke has stressed throughout the, the gospel... That Jesus is the Son of God. In Luke chapter 3, when the, the Holy Spirit comes upon, descends upon Jesus, the Father says, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. He is the well-pleasing Son. In his genealogy, he's traced back to Adam, the Son of God. On the Mount of Transfiguration, you have the voice from heaven saying, This is my son, listen to him. Jesus' first recorded words in history, in chapter 2, verse 49, I must be in my father's house. Okay? Now that is remarkable language. I must be in my father's house. He's talking to Joseph and Mary, and he says, I've got to be in my father's house. There has been this emphasis on sonship throughout the gospel. Now, in one sense, he's the son of God for us as a man. Adam is deemed the son of God in Luke 3.38. Luke says Jesus is the true son of God. He is our representative to the father. But in another sense, 
He is God of very God. He is the, the only begotten Son of the Father. Only God can save sinners. That's why He had to be God. He had to have divine nature. He had to be fully God because only God can save sinners. That was Jonah's uh, confession when he says salvation belongs to Yahweh. Okay? So there's been a real emphasis that he is the Son of God. And now that he is claiming this, case closed. Note again verse 71. What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Note the irony. What further testimony do we need? Oh, if they had caught the irony. What further testimony do we need? We've heard it from his own lips. We should bow the knee. Not crucify him. And we need to catch that irony. Because I would submit to you, what further testimony do you need this morning? He is the Son of God. The Son of Man. The Christ. Our prophet, priest, and king. Our suffering servant. You know, there is no explicit application here. Explicit. There's no commands to obey. There's no principles for living that you often hear in many pulpits. But that doesn't mean this text doesn't have all the relevance in the world. Three hours out before the cross, Jesus is declaring, I am the suffering servant. Three hours before the cross, Jesus is declaring implicitly, I am the prophet of God that Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy 18. Three hours out, Jesus is declaring implicitly, I am the Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God. What is the application? We bow the knee. And if my heart isn't in that posture, something's wrong. So the only response you can have is, Holy Spirit, change my calloused heart. Open my blind eyes, my deaf ears, because I'm not stirred by this passage. The preacher certainly sounds like he's stirred, but I'm not stirred. I'm ready to go home and eat lunch. Stir my heart. This passage is crucial to us. And coming back to that great promise of the enthroned Messiah at the right hand of the Father. You see, there's only two options. Jesus is either seated at the throne of God, the right hand, as your judge or he is standing at the right hand as your advocate your defense attorney it's the only two options there's no third option is he your judge today because you have refused to submit to him in repentance and faith or is he your defense attorney Advocating to the Father, saying, Father, this person is a sinner, but I plead my blood, I plead my righteousness before you for every sin he or she has ever committed, for every sin he or she is presently committing, for every sin he or she will ever commit. I plead the blood. Last year I went to the Victoria Falls, one of the seven wonders of the world. It is two times the size of Niagara Falls. 
It's so deep that there's clouds. You can't even see the bottom. It is absolutely jaw-dropping stunning. I was in awe. And this text should have the same effect on us as we behold the Christ. Here's the question. How do you apply Victoria Falls? You don't apply Victoria Falls. You stand in awe. That's what you do with Victoria Falls. You're stunned by its beauty and its glory. As you behold it. And your soul expands. Your heart enlarges as you behold Victoria Falls. And that is the proper response to this passage. Even in the midst of his weakness. His being mocked and persecuted and eventually killed. We behold Our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Luke is writing this to Theophilus. And it's why the Holy Spirit has given it to us. Let's pray.